Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. What does the science say? It's a question we ask all the time, or at least we should, about our health and well-being. And who does that science? Is there a secret lab somewhere? A particular aspect of health is its psychology. How we feel about something that might help us might be the biggest determinant in whether it gets done. Other times it's education about the topic, or enforcement, or engineering, changing the environment or policies such that healthy habits take place naturally without people needing to consciously decide all the time. Today we talk with a scientist and professor who has been studying the psychology of healthy behaviors for decades, and hear an overview of numerous studies and how they get done and what we might learn from them to use every day. Dr. Heather Hausenbloss is a scientist with a PhD in the science of health behaviors. She is a health psychology expert, award-winning scientist and author. Her research focuses on how our health habits affect our well-being, in particular how our diet, exercise, sleep, journaling, and supplementation affects our overall health. Formerly at the University of Florida, she is now on the faculty at Jacksonville University. She is the CEO of Wellness Discovery Labs, a health behavior research company. She also writes a regular newsletter separating health and wellness fact from fiction, doing the research so you don't have to. Dr. Heather Hausenbloss, welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be here. So we're excited to talk with you today. It's always interesting to interact with people in the health and wellness space, but honestly, they come in all stripes. People are very interested in their own health and they approach it from a variety of vantage points. You have one of, shall we say, academic validity and length as a PhD in the science of health behaviors Tell me a little bit more in your words what that is and uh, what has encompassed the majority of your study and effort through time. Yeah, it, it's a great question. And it's an area that I often will get a lot of questions about what exactly do I do? And when I, I don't want to date myself, but when I started back in graduate school and working on 
my PhD, I actually, the very beginning was fascinated with sports psychology and becoming a sports psychologist. I just, you know, played competitive sports and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And very quickly, I realized I was more interested in why people don't do things that are really good for them, for their health. And when I got into this field, it was really at the very beginning, it was just starting out. So it was really exciting to get into it. And I, I started researching for the most part, exercise and studying why people really don't move. At this point, we were looking at maybe only 80% of adults actually exercised enough to get what we call the, the health benefits of it. And I was fascinated with why people would not do something that was so good for them from a health standpoint. So physiologically, the science is really clear that exercise is very good for us. And most people know that if you ask people, 99 plus percent of people will say, yes, I know exercise is good for me, but yet very few people do it regularly. And that's where the psychology comes in. So that's what I began to study is what motivates people to exercise, why people do not exercise, how we can get them to overcome these barriers to make it part of their daily routine. And then also take a look at the psychological effects of exercise, because now we know that you can use exercise to treat um, mental health conditions such as depression, or if you're just kind of, you know, stressed or anxious or in a bad mood, pretty much guaranteed after you exercise, even if it's only for a couple of minutes, you're going to report that you're in a better mood. So that's what I began to study within my lab and became very fascinated with it. And then quite quickly realized that yes, exercise is very important for our health, but it's not the only thing. And began to branch out to say that it's multiple things. Yes, we need to move more during the day. And it's not just exercise. We need to stand more during the day and, and get, you know, really, really good sleep at night. But also looking at what we're eating as well. And then also taking a look at supplements and the role that it plays to try to get people to be basically to be as healthy as possible. So exercise, the diet, supplements, all kinds of things that we know of that may be at times very contributory to a healthy lifestyle and yet are not consistently practiced, even when people know that that's good for them. I'd like to get closer to that in a few minutes, but the exercise part first. Exercise sometimes carries connotations for people like, I can't wait to do that or no way. Uh, my mother was famous for saying, and she was a pretty fit person, but she would say, sometimes I feel like exercising, but then I lie down until the feeling goes away. Why, first of all, do you think that exercise itself carries a particular connotation one way or the other for so many people? And could you elaborate further on what falls under the umbrella of exercise for you? Yeah, so exercise... Like if you're looking at kind of the, the standard definition, it's leisure time, physical activity. So what that means is it's done during your free time. And usually when we think about exercise, we think about it from an intensity standpoint. So basically you think about it like how hard you're actually breathing. So you can do it moderately or vigorously. So moderately as you're getting your heart rate up and you're breathing a little harder, but you could talk to the person next to you, like going for a brisk walk. Vigorous would be jogging. Um, for example, or running where it's more difficult to, to talk to the person beside you. And I think, unfortunately, most people think of exercise as vigorous, that it has to be painful, that they're not going to enjoy it, and they're going to look forward to when it's done. And that's not necessarily the case. 
it can be as simple now, some fascinating science is showing that even a couple minutes of, of activity during the day has significant health benefits. And I tell people, incorporate it within your day. So even as simple as carrying your, your groceries up a flight of stairs can have great health benefits. So most people do not want to go to the gym. And, and I understand that it may not be pleasant, they may not enjoy it. So I said, well, take a look at what you like, because if you don't like it, you're not going to stick with it. And one of the best activities for people to do for their health is to walk. And I say, get a walking partner, meet with a friend and make that part of your daily routine. And what I will often do when I'm crunched for time, because time is the number one barrier for why people say they don't exercise is I will kind of incorporate different things. So sometimes I'll have a walking meeting where if I have to meet with somebody for work-related thing, we'll, we'll do it through walking or I'll put my earbuds in and talk to somebody that way or I'll meet up with friends as well. And we do know from a science standpoint, one of the best exercise partners you can have is a pet like a dog because they kind of force you to get out and exercise. So we do know that people who have dogs end up walking significantly more than people who don't. Uh, one of my colleagues, he has installed a treadmill in his office and he takes virtually all of his Zoom meetings on a treadmill. And it it gives a certain interesting bobbing rhythmic look to his image on the other side, but you quickly get over it. And I have been in meetings with him before where I thought, you know, maybe I should be doing that. It's probably a matter of time before somebody rigs up some virtual glasses, et cetera, so that you could walk outside and take your meetings, even if they're virtual. So it's the totality of movement that you would say does fall under the umbrella of importance, even if the definition of exercise, whether vigorous or non-vigorous, is activity taken during your free time. You know, that's well said, and it really encompasses the whole day. Unfortunately, we have uh, a group of people that we call active couch potatoes, where they exercise, let's say vigorously, maybe for, for 30 minutes a day, but then they pretty much spend the rest of their day being sedentary. So that would probably be sitting. And that has negative health effects also. So what we see is this movement kind of going on and almost a paradigm shift with how we think about exercise, that yes, the exercise portion is really important, but we need to take a look at our whole day for our movement. So what I mean by that is we should be standing more during the day doing light activity as well so light activity is just you know um, very simple like walking maybe swaying back and forth and also to think of sleep as a type of activity and if you're not getting good sleep at night pretty much guaranteed you're not going to be moving as much during the day meaning that you're just not going to have the energy to do it you're going to probably be in a worse mood and be less productive so we need to take a look at everything so we do know that people who exercise and stand more and move more during the day are going to sleep better at night. And it's this whole relationship that we need to take a look at. And I encourage people that once you've been sitting for over an hour, stand up. And even if it's just for a couple of minutes, it almost gives your body a reset. And that's really, really important for people to do. Yeah. A great angle of discussion is the synergy of these various pillars Certainly at Lasting Impact Wellness, we talk about some consistent pillars of well-being, self-awareness being the first one, but a functional fitness, nutrition, then sleep and recovery, your emotional health, your relationships, other things. But if you exercise more, you sleep better. You might even eat better. If you eat better, you might exercise better. If you are exercising with somebody, you might be building relationships and so on, this this 
web of synergy between positive health pillars is really remarkable. So often I talk to clients or patients who talk about an aspect of health as if it's a zero sum game. If there's a winner, there's a loser. If I'm in the gym, I don't have time to do other important activity to them. They miss the fact that there is a tremendous benefit in almost all other areas of their lives if they amplify any single pillar of their health and well-being. It's true. They're, they're related. And we do know that typically if people are exercising, it, it trickles over into these other health behaviors. And you're right. They're more likely to eat healthier. They're probably going to be getting better sleep. And the social connections is an aspect of health that people don't realize how important it is. I think the pandemic highlighted this where we're really in a, a loneliness and a social isolation pandemic. And the effect that it has on our health is incredible. There was a fascinating study that came out showing that people who report that they're lonely or don't feel connected to others from a health standpoint, it's the equivalent of smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. That's the negative effect that it has on people's health. So it's really important for us to connect, directly connect with people and Oftentimes people say, I don't have time. Well, combine things together, like, you know, go for a walk with your friends or exercise with your friends and do things that way. So that you're almost, I don't want to say double dipping, but in a sense you are, and you need to make that a priority within your life. That's a great point. In recent episodes on neurodegenerative disorders, a neurologist guest talked about the effect prophylactically, or at least prevention of neurodegenerative disorder based on the strength of your social relationships. And in fact, an emerging study not yet published, but presented uh, volunteering and how that was a thought to be somewhat protective in terms of the progression of existing neurodegenerative disease or uh, the prevention of diagnosis. So gosh, the wide ranging effects. I would also highlight the fact that sometimes we we want to vilify screens and electronics. I always find that ironic since we're on a podcast right now. But uh, my wife has a terrific habit that she started sort of as a not true New Year's resolution, but every time in the last year that she says she thinks about a member of her family or a friend that to whom she has not extended a hello recently, she will just send them a text saying, hey, I'm thinking of you right now. While that's screen-based, it has led to real-life meetings, conversations, phone calls, social interactions that might be of the more sustaining sort. So I would encourage listeners to use the weapons at hand that might lead to more valuable social interactions, even if some of those may be of seeming superficial or electronic means. Okay, so thank you for highlighting that. We transitioned a bit from exercise to social engagement, but as we'll see and have mentioned, there is a relationship between almost all of these positive health aspects. If we could, tell me a little bit about your experience in the exercise realm as a scientist, studies that you have either conducted, been a part of, or are aware of that drive some of your thinking in that area? You've referenced some, but any others? Yeah, you know, it's something that's evolved over time. And it's really interesting. This is going back several years 
Earlier, I was with a graduate student at, that I was advising. We were about to design an exercise intervention to try to get people to exercise more. And when you take a look at any type of behavior that we do, it's along a continuum from people not doing it at all to doing it regularly to doing it too much. And we began to say, can you actually exercise too much? And it has negative consequences. So we began to look into this notion of what we call excessive exercise or, or exercise addiction. And it really was quite fascinating that there's a small group of, of individuals. It's not a large percentage of the population, but a small percentage that are exercising what we would classify as too much and that it's having negative health consequences. So we spent some trying time try to bring that to light that any type of behavior, even eating, you can take healthy eating to an extreme, or you can sleep too much or become almost obsessed with taking supplements. So we spent some time trying to bring that to light and to state that, you know what, if someone is doing it too much, oftentimes they would get praised by people saying that, oh, I, I wish I would exercise as much as you did. And we were finding that these people that were excessively exercising, they, they struggled with it. They knew they were exercising too much and it was having a lot of health challenges for them. And I had one individual that we interviewed for a study and he had said that it was becoming very expensive for him because he ended up buying three gym memberships because he didn't want each gym to know how much he was exercising. So he'd go to one gym in the morning, one in the afternoon, and then one in the, and one in the evening. And when you're spending three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours a day doing something, then that takes away from being this well-rounded, healthy individual. So I think it's important for people to know that balance is important. It's difficult to find that balance oftentimes for people, but to be aware that even when you think that something is really good for you, you can potentially take it to the extreme. Wow, great points. That's a, a hair-raising story to hear that a compulsion to exercise might result in cloaking behavior, essentially trying to hide one's positive, otherwise thought of as positive activity from other people out of fear of being discovered. How about we pivot a little bit to diet then? There may be some parallels here. I mean, maybe start with that end question for exercise. Tell us a little bit about some of your research, either conducted uh, a participant or your awareness of the research that you have found most informative in the realm of diet and health? Yeah, the, the diet research, is, it can be a challenge because it's really difficult from a science standpoint to study it accurately because we're human and people tend not to follow diets consistently. And basically the gold standard would be to have people be in a lab and to be able to weigh their food and know exactly what they're eating. What I have found with the diet research that, that we have done is that it's very difficult for people to stick to strict diets for an extended period of time. We know that people want to be healthy. They want to eat you know, healthier, but it becomes a challenge. We had did a, a study a few years back on the ketogenic diet and people, and this is really kind of at the height of the ketogenic diet and people really wanted to participate and they wanted to, to know what this study was and what they needed to eat. And we also put in some intermittent fasting within the study and it was a challenge 
for people to be able to adhere and to stick with it. And there was lots of confusion, even when we were providing people with the food that they needed to eat. And it was a short-term study, but it was only about a month long, but the, there's a lot of challenges with people sticking with it. And what we found when we followed up is that most people went back to their old eating habits. So by putting people on strict diets, usually what happens is they try to adhere to it as much as they can in the short term, and it's just not sustainable in the long term. So what we tend now to encourage people to do is to try to make small little health changes to their diet and stick with that one little change for a while. And hopefully that will become habit and then add something else onto it. Like for example, drink a glass of water first thing when you wake up every morning, do that for a month or two, hopefully that will become a habit and then add something else on. And to realize that we're only human, we need to enjoy life. And, you know, if you want a piece of cake, have that piece of cake and enjoy it because people will get in this mindset that they must adhere to the strict diet. And when they so-called, when they think they fail and maybe have a cheat food, then they kind of go off the rails and that's not okay as well. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. With diets, um, the, uh, the biggest study that I have read recently, which compared multiple kind of popular studies, really concluded that the Mediterranean diet kind of trumps all other diets from a health standpoint and having a lot of health habits. So what we tend to encourage people to do is eat as much vegetables and fruits. And I try to put it in that order that your veggies come first and healthy meats, if that's what you want and with healthy fats and try to incorporate that as much as possible within your diet. I don't know if the studies were designed to look at this, but as you studied people who were on a particular diet and then followed them up later to see what their habits might be in the future, did you notice some adherence to some of those small habits going forward? Is that part of that recommendation? It sounds like a ter terrific recommendation and seems to make sense. Is there some data that shows that small incremental changes were more sustainable than larger changes over time? You know what? Definitely. And we, when we take a look at, at health habits and people say, well, how long do I need to do something until it becomes a habit? On average, we're looking at about a two month point. It's actually 66 days on average. It takes um, something to become a habit for people, but there's a large variation. So that's on average. For some people, if they stick to doing something for as little as 20 days, it becomes a habit. Some people it's about 250 days. So there's a big variability, but it seems about the two month point is kind of that sweet spot for people to continually do something. And then it becomes that habit for them. We did an interesting study when I was at University of Florida, where from a weight loss standpoint, because a lot of people would enroll within these nutrition studies because they wanted to lose weight. And what we do know is that most people who lose weight end up by the two year mark, putting it all back on, and then oftentimes a, a couple of extra pounds. So we had a goal within the study to say, okay, we want you to, to lose about 5% of your overall body weight and then maintain that over a, a two year period. So we were trying to reframe how they thought about weight loss to say, you don't need to lose significant pounds, but what you want to do is even a, a weight loss of about five pounds can have significant health benefits. And if you can keep that weight off and keep those five pounds off for a year or two, then it's going to result in, in, in really 
important health improvements. So it's almost changing people and how they think about things and how they think about health and how they think about weight and their food that leads to these long-term changes. So forgive this question, but as a long-term scientist and as a scientist myself, I look back on certain studies that I've been a part of or were aware of that seemed like a great idea at the time or seemed like we were really onto something and then realized in hindsight that we may have been barking up the wrong tree. Are there trends that you've seen that you think well, some of these trends and some of these studies were a little bit misguided through the lens of hindsight? You know, it's interesting and right, the hindsight and when you look back and early on in my career, the research that we were doing from an exercise standpoint tended to be vigorous exercise, get people moving. And one of the interesting studies that we did, because we were trying to understand why certain people would stick to exercise and others wouldn't, is that we began to look at the environment, meaning where people are actually exercising. And we did a, a study where we found that when women were exercising in a co-ed gym, which has mirrors all over the place, they actually ended up not experiencing all the, the positive psychological benefits of exercise. And the reason why is that that type of an environment was anxiety provoking for these individuals. So one of the things that really became highlighted is that it matters where you do things as well and you need to be comfortable with it. And not everybody wants to work out in a gym. Some people prefer to exercise at home and we do need to take a look at take a look at the environment and where we're doing, where we're doing things. Because at the end of the day, if you don't like it, you're not going to stick with it. And that is really important. So that was kind of this aha moment that the gym is not for everybody. Vigorous exercise is not for everybody. And we can't put everybody into kind of these cookie cutter types of interventions because it's not going to work. It's not a one size fits all. It's not a one diet that's going to work for everybody. We have to take a look at the individual person. That's enormous insight. The concept of self-awareness I already referenced is such a huge part of what we do at Lasting Impact. Well, if you're not paying attention to how you feel and what's going on in you, even as you're pursuing this workout and getting to the gym or whatever environment, you might not realize that the environment where you're trying to accomplish that is provoking anxiety in you. But if you are paying attention, you might uh, choose to do it in a different place or pursue it in a different way. As physicians, we talk about compliance. How likely is the patient to do the treatment plan that we have outlined together or that I have prescribed? But compliance is really all about a willingness to understand the reasons behind a particular prescription and then engineering it for success. And if one is self-aware, then perhaps they can engineer themselves for success by pursuing their exercise, in this case, in a different location. You'd hate for anyone to miss out on the tremendous benefits when there was a correctable situation. What are some of the most impactful studies that you have had? And they may be ones you've already mentioned, and if so, just say so. But if it's fair for me to say what was misguided, what do you think are most enduring in terms of studies you are aware of in your current vantage point? Yeah, probably for, from my standpoint, uh, I really like not necessarily single studies, but studies that have grouped together with all research in a certain area and then 
provide what the overall arching theme is. And we call those from a research standpoint, meta-analyses. And when I was doing my, my PhD 25 plus years ago, we actually did a, a meta-analysis. And this type of research was really at the beginning stages back in the 1990s. And we were interested actually, and it was quite cutting edge back then, the social effects of exercise. And we spent a long time doing the study and grouping everything together, all the research, and then presenting it within a research paper. And at that point, it was really cutting edge to show that our social relationships have a significant impact on whether we exercise or not, how we feel about exercise, and how long we're actually going to exercise as well. And that was quite a cutting edge paper at that point in time, because we, we failed to realize that we are social beings and exercise can be a social activity and it can play a really key role in whether people want to do it or not, how long they do it, and more importantly, how they actually feel about it. And what we found is that people would, when they were exercising in certain types of group settings or with friends, they enjoyed it a lot more. If you enjoy something, then you're more likely to do it. What we found was that if their physician gave them a so-called prescription for exercise and said, you know what, you should be moving and you should be exercising, that actually had a significant impact on whether they started exercising or not from this significant other. So it's interesting when we take a look at the whole for exercises, oftentimes people think of it as an individual activity, but people around us can really have an impact on how much we do it and how much we enjoy it. So if your social relationships or advice from a medical professional have been shown to be influential in maintaining positive habits, Another question right. I have for you after seeing so much research go by and being at the forefront of it, from what origin would you say a lot of positive uh, health lifestyle changes have uh, come? Is it from government recommendations, from schools, from medical entities, professionals, from academia, from the corporate or business realm. There are so many places who's had some good positive impact. I think the best way and the organizations that have the most impact are when you actually come in and change the environment and change the infrastructure that tends to have the most impact. So what I mean by that, uh, most people aren't even aware of what the necessarily the nitty gritty of the exercise guidelines are. You know, our nutrition standards have changed significantly over time and people are very confused by that. But what we find is the most significant is when you change the environment. So what I mean by that, for example, if we take a look at smoking, we've done an incredible job, right? With decreasing the amount that people smoke. And that didn't come from the labels being put on the cigarettes. And I remember this when I was a young kid that would say that smoking causes cancer on the cigarette packages. It was actually changing policies and, and laws in the environment. So what I mean by that is cigarettes then became heavily taxed and then it became more and more difficult to, to smoke. It went to restaurants that would have a smoking and a non-smoking section to all of a sudden you can't smoke in these buildings. You can't smoke on planes. Now you can only, you need to be X number of meters away from a hospital before you can, before you can smoke. So it was making these types of policy changes 
that actually change the behavior. And we see the same thing happening with other health behaviors. So for example, if we take a look at our environment, what we, we do know from even a nutrition standpoint is what tends to have more of an effect on what we're eating is what's actually there. Living in an area where you're inundated with fast food versus where you don't have access to fast food within about a mile and a half of your house. We know that if you put sidewalks into a community, then people start to walk more because they feel that it's a safe environment. And that's actually making changes to the actual infrastructure. So that's what we begin to, to see. And those are expensive and they're difficult, but it takes away the guesswork from people where they just don't even have to think about it. They just go outside, there's a sidewalk and they'll start to walk or they realize that they don't have access to fast food because it's not available, then they will tend to go to the more healthier options. So it's really these changes in the physical environment that tend to have these significant impacts. I think of a, a landmark study that has over the years been replicated many different types of situations and environments. But what the researchers wanted to do was they wanted to try to increase stair use for people because actually going up a flight of stairs has a lot of health benefits. And they went to a train station where is a very, very similar situation where you'd have a set of stairs and then right beside it would be an escalator and people almost instantly, right? You, you make that choice as to whether you're going to take the escalator or the stairs. And what they did is they wanted to increase stair use. So they put a very simple poster up on the wall where it had this kind of healthy buff looking heart running up the stairs and then an unhealthy kind of overweight sluggish heart going up the escalator. And that's all that they did. And then they had researchers come in and would actually track and observe who was taking the stairs versus the escalator. And what they found when they put the, um, put that poster up on the wall, that significantly more people began to take the stairs over the course of the study. Then they took the poster down and three months later, that it was back to baseline where, where most people were going up the escalator. So I think that it, it's really quite interesting and, and almost brilliant. That is such an inexpensive thing to do to put that poster up. You're going through the train station, you look up, you see this, and it honestly changes people's choices as to what they do. And as a behavioralist, I'm always fascinated with people's behavior and I'm always watching people when I'm at the airport, for example, and seeing how many people are going to take the stairs versus the escalator. And that was a really, really simple thing to do that had really an incredible impact on people's behavior. Wow, that's a fascinating study. It was effective and it also probably speaks some to the Hawthorne effect. If people feel as though they're being observed, then it may change some of their behavior. And in this case, people that made that binary selection for the escalator might've felt like I'm being grouped into the unhealthy sluggish heart group, even by bystanders or any number of analyses might've followed. But the fact is, is that it changed behavior. And then when it was gone, uh, the behavior reverted back to the prior pattern. It did. It's fascinating. And when we talk about environment, we did a, a study at the university where we controlled for as many things as we possibly could. But in one classroom, we gave students standing desks. They were literally these pop-up standing desks that they put on top of the, the desk. They weren't forced to do this. It was voluntary, but most of them did it. And over the course of the semester, what we did is we observed their behavior. And then we actually took a look at how they did in the class. And what we found is that the students that were in the standing desk lecture hall, they ended up attending more to the professor. So being more focused on the lecture, 
And ultimately, at the end of the semester, they had a higher overall GPA than our control class, which was your regular lecture hall where the students were sitting. So it's really interesting how if you put these standing desks in there, most of the students will use them. And then it ended up having these positive effects, not only on their ability within the class to stay focused on the task at hand, as opposed to being on their phone and looking off at other things or daydreaming. And then they ended up um, performing better. So their GPA was significantly higher in that class. So those are things that I say to people, imagine if you walked into a meeting and there's no chairs and you're just, you have to stand, then, then you would. And you are probably going to listen a lot more, focus a lot more. And I bet you your meeting will probably end up being shorter as well. So it's interesting when we take a look at our environment and we know that we need to be standing more during the day, but everywhere you go, there, there's chairs that promote us to, to sit. So I always say, imagine if we took away the chairs, what would happen to our behavior? And that's changing your actual environment. So the methodology there is fascinating. How did you measure that they were more attentive to the professor? So what we did is we had our graduate assistants actually observe their behavior. So they would be in the classroom, in the lecture hall, but they would be off like they were another student and they were actually recording the students and how many were standing, how many were sitting, whether they were focusing on the instructor, the professor at the front of lecture hall, or were they on their phone or were they looking down? Were they doing something else? So it was actually what we call this a gold standard when you're actually observing people's behavior, but we said it was unobtrusive. So it's not like the students knew that they were being observed. They were just in the lecture hall. So what we did is we categorized then all the different types of behaviors and then grouped them together and then took a look at things regarding focus and ultimately their, their GPA in the class. So arguably their cognitive engagement and subsequent academic performance in that class was superior in the standing desk group compared to the sitting desks. Correct. Yep. And it, it makes if you're focused more and you're attending more and you're listening more to to the professor and not off daydreaming or thinking about other right. things or on your phone, then you're probably going to retain the lecture material more. And that's what we found is that they performed better in the class with a higher overall GPA. And the GPA in um, our standing desk class ended up being about 6% higher than in the traditional classroom. And that was the difference between a C plus to a B. Wow. Makes me want to stand for this podcast right now. I feel so <laughs> guilty being in a seated position. Wow. All right. Let's go back, if we can, to social relationships. Talk to us a little bit about current science there or studies that you may be engaged in or things that you have found most impactful over time, some of which I think you've already referenced. Yeah, I, I think the most impactful thing is that we fail to realize how important our social connections are for our health, and it pretty much trumps everything else for longevity. We do know that people who, who state that they have solid social connections and they have a lot of friends and family that they can count on end up living longer than individuals who don't. And it even trumps things like our, our standard things that we, we think of for longevity. It's pretty much on a par with smoking, meaning that if you smoke, typically your, your longevity is going to be reduced. But the same thing if people report that they're socially isolated. And what I encourage people to do is if you want to change some type of a health habit, take a look at who your friends are and who your family are. So if your friends are eating 
healthy or if they're regularly exercising, for example, you are significantly more likely to. If your close friends and family are overweight, then you're about 160% more likely to be overweight as well. So take a look at who your friends and family are, what they are doing. And if you want to change a health habit, then you might want to surround yourself with individuals that are already doing that or that are trying to do it. That's why these health wellness groups, even if it's on social media, I see a lot of social media groups, let's say on Facebook towards a certain type of health activity, join that because there's power to be had with being involved in groups. Well, again, the synergy there, if you are involved in these groups and you're working with others and hanging out with others, there are so many positive gains for you, but you also uh, may have a positive impact on those around you. Well, all right. A very refreshing discussion. I think it's very interesting for our listeners and people who are interested in health and well-being to hear real science is going on that supports what they have found to be true by their own observation or are hammered with a lot through popular media sources. There are legit scientists studying these things in the background, and sometimes that legitimate science finds flaws in our current thinking, and in many other times it supports it and uh, continues to promote its importance over time. Tell me what you're excited about right now, looking forward as a scientist. What's around the corner for you as a health psychologist? That's an excellent question. And we really see an explosion right now of research. And there's a lot of great research that is going on. And I think for me and something that I have been very passionate about is taking what tends oftentimes to be tucked away in journals where the only other people that read them are other scientists and to take that information and put it in a format that can be that, that other people are going to understand and want to read. So that's been a passion of mine because there are so many health wellness influencers out there that are promoting, whether it's activities or products that really do not have any science behind them. And people are spending a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of money on this because most people want to become healthy and I get very frustrated with that. So a passion of mine is to read the research and get the word out on what actually works and what doesn't and what the science actually says. Like for example, do blue blocker glasses really improve your sleep? So if you're to wear these glasses at night to block out the blue light from your screen, is that going to help you sleep better? And what I'll do is I'll review all the research and then write a, a very quick and easy and digestible article on this is the takeaway of what the science says. Like, for example, there was a, and you, you see it all over the internet, this push that, that what we call earthing or grounding is really good for you. And what that is, is basically going outside in the grass or the sand and you're, you're barefoot. And there's a lot of information on the internet that will say that this is so good for you and that it can cure all of these diseases. But when you actually take a look at the science behind it, there's no science to state that it's going to cure diseases and make you significantly healthier. But what I do tell people is you're probably going to be in a better mood because you're going to be outside when you're doing this. And if your feet are touching the sand or the grass, then you're going to probably enjoy that. But don't think that it's going to make you live 10 years longer or cure you from some type of condition that you have. And that I think is really important because there's a lot of health wellness misinformation out there. And I would encourage your listeners to, to be skeptical 
if when you're reading headlines and individuals are talking about some type of product or gadget or gizmo on TikTok, whatever it may be, step back and say, does this really make sense? And try to find reliable health sources that will get to the heart of whether it works or doesn't. Terrific advice. Of course, you are preaching to the choir right now. Laura and I, both as physicians, founded this company in many ways so that we could provide accurate, legitimate, scientific underpinning to health and well-being information. Thank you for also bringing that message from the standpoint of a PhD researcher and a faculty member at a university. So with that said, where can people find you and how can they tap into the wellspring of scientifically backed information, vetted science that you might provide? Uh, I have a, a company called Wellness Discovery, where the heart of it is to provide science-based health and wellness information to people. So it's a website you can also go to. It's called the Substack that I write under Wellness Discovery, where I post a couple times a week where I will review science and then provide my takeaway based on the science as to what we can do to be healthier, like wearing blue blocker glasses, are those going to help you sleep better, for example, or how much time you're spending on your screen? How does that affect your overall health? So that's a a Substack as well. And I'm also on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate the conversation today. I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, To all of our listeners, please do carefully vet the information that you receive from any source, even from people like us who supposedly have acronyms behind our name and things that should make us authorities. I like the advice to be skeptical, but be open at the same time. Dr. Heather Hausenbloss, I appreciate your time and your energy, and thank you for being with us on the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast. You know what? Thank you for having me, and thank you for everything that you guys are doing for health and wellness. I really appreciate it. It's very, very important. Thank you very much. To our listeners, thank you so much for being with us today. Help us to elevate this podcast even further. Please download episodes, rate them highly, and most of all, share them with someone who may really benefit from the information presented. Join our community, lastingimpactwellness.com, or drop us a line at info at lastingimpactwellness. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you for your time and for your energy. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. Let's be well together.